Okay, so I see our guest is here. Our dream dream team, CH team for the guest segment is here. I will step down at this point and leave you very capable hands of Robert James. I'll see you all tomorrow. As always, Slava Ukraini. Thank you so much, Tim. God, as James is getting up to the co our co-host, and I'm going to introduce our guest. We are joined today, I'm very excited to say, we are joined today by Professor Olga Onuk. Uh, professor Onuk is a professor of comparative and Ukrainian politics at the University of Manchester. She earned a, a DPhil from Oxford, a Master's of Sciences in Comparative Politics from the London School of Economics. Our friend Lexicon will be happy to know that she has a BA honors with a double major in political studies and international development from Queen's University in Kingston in Canada. I think that's Ontario. Onish joined the University of Manchester in 2014 after holding research posts at the University of Toronto, Oxford, and Harvard. We've been reading the Zelensky Effect, her latest work called, authored by Professor Henry Hale at George Washington University in our Maria Report book club exploring the development of the vibrant Ukrainian civil society we've come to admire in the last almost two years. Based on eight years of research, the Zelensky effect analyzes the rise of democratic duty and state attachment in Ukraine, showing that President Zelensky is as much a product of the Ukrainian civic society that he has come to embody as he is a profoundly capable leader who has rallied with him in Ukraine. The Zelensky effect is as much about the Ukrainian nation that made Zelensky the man he is today as it is about his personal capacity to rally key constituencies and then unite them. He is simply one of 44 million Ukrainians just like him. We're delighted to have you here today, Anne Maria Report. Welcome, Professor Honor. Thank you so much for having me. I just introduce you quickly to, to James, who's my co-host on the book report. He'll be helping with the interview today also. I think we all remember the first days of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We were astounded by the Ukrainian response, far from the capitulation that some of the talking heads in the West predicted. We saw stunning scenes of old men physically pushing back tanks. Here I go. Long lines of Ukrainians oh. volunteering for the armed forces, defiant citizens wrapped up in Ukrainian flags, yelling at the invaders to go home. An old lady bringing down a drone with a jar of tomatoes. Another offering sunflower seeds to soldiers for their pockets so that when they fell down and died in Ukraine, the sunflowers would bloom. Defiant President Zelensky, President Zelensky saying, I need ammunition, not a ride. Everyday Ukrainians of all ages and abilities rallying to the cause of a free and independent Ukraine. I think that the, many of us have wondered where the strength came from. Professor Onos, in your research, what have you discovered about Ukrainian society that made everyday Ukrainians give them the strength to stand up so strongly to a powerful enemy? Wow. <laughs> the million dollar question or the million pound question or the multi-million question. Please call me Olya, though, from going forward. Thank you. I think... For someone who's been studying contention, dissent, protest engagement, activism, ordinary citizens' involvement in politics in Ukraine for decades now, I was a great deal less surprised. And in fact, I'm on record multiple times publicly seeming, seemingly looking extremely naive, right, in the eyes of some analysts, that I knew Ukrainian ordinary citizens would engage. I didn't know exactly how large the proportion of Ukrainian civilian engagement would be, but I knew there would be a large group of people that would engage in the war effort to defend their country in some way. That's just something if anyone's been paying attention to any sort of data coming out of Ukraine over the last 30 years, increasingly year on year, decade on decade, you just had very clear indicators of a higher and higher rate 
of civic attachment and civic duty and civic engagement, right? People would pay attention to it in these births of action that they were privy to through the lens. If you're just looking at Ukraine from an external media lens, then you would only notice the civic engagement at key points in time. Maybe you noticed it in 2000, 2001. Maybe you noticed it in 2004 because that was a big protest. Maybe you noticed it for the first time in 2013, 2014. This was an ongoing process where more and more citizens came to be directly engaged in their politics and their views on those politics changed. This is, I think, in part what people were missing in that story. Whereas where the strength comes from, I don't know where the strength comes from, but it certainly is tied up in this incredible feeling that not only do these individuals have a duty to defend their state, but they are fiercely attached to the state. And that attachment grows over 30 years time. Of course, there are early ralliers and late ralliers. And we talk about that a little bit more in the book. One of the things that I was really taken with in, in reading your description again of the Orange Revolution and the, especially the, the situation after the Orange Revolution where things got better and then got worse again, is how Ukrainians never gave up on themselves and never gave up on their new state. That is something I think that we all have come to admire. I, I'm, I guess that's part of the same question. I'm just wondering how it was, how, why Ukrainians didn't give up. I know a lot of Ukrainians, even Ukrainians who left Ukraine, are still strongly attached to Ukraine as an idea, as a nation, as an idea that isn't really ethnically related. This is something that you bring out in your book that I was fascinated by was that the ethnic and linguistic identities have, are, seem to be much less important than what you call civic engagement, civic identity. What are your thoughts on that? How did the, 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 the traditional in every culture, the traditional identify with identity, the people who are just like you, how did that become so overridden by this civic identity? I think here, in, it's really important to acknowledge that not all Ukrainian citizens and ethnic Ukrainians around the world have this only civic attachment, right? They Many do have it in addition to an ethnic collective identity, right? There is that combination. And in fact, for some people in Ukraine, they might be a minority, but they are nonetheless an important constituency. For them, it's the most important thing about their identity and attachment is this ethno-linguistic um, identity that they have, right? That is to speak Ukrainian, that is to be of a certain religious practicing group, that is of a variety of other things, including reading certain types of literatures, knowing certain types of songs, and so on and so forth. That's a minority group. That group has been growing smaller and smaller within Ukraine over the 30 years. For a large portion, even of that small group, they also came to have this civic identity as being more and more important. There is that group, and we shouldn't underplay its existence. Certainly for diasporic groups around the world that are Ukrainians, not all have a civic sense of attachment. Many do have an attachment that is ethno-linguistic in nature. Although it can be extremely complicated because it might be linguistic in nature, but not ethno-religious, for instance. Family and friends that may be, for instance, Jewish, will still have a linguistic attachment to the Ukrainian language, even though they grew up abroad. But even that gets a little bit messy amongst Ukrainians, which I think is a fascinating thing to watch and study. With this civic attachment, it is a phenomenon that is 
interesting for us as political scientists to study. Where and how do civic attachments to states form, right? How do people come to rally to those civic sense of duty and attachment? That's a question for the ages. This isn't, there's many different ideas and theories on what drives that. It is something that Henry and I are dedicating our entire careers to. One thing that I always mention, and we were talking about with Henry quite a bit when we were starting to write the book, is that I knew how to sing what became the Ukrainian national anthem before there was an independent Ukrainian state. It was one of the first songs that I learned in my life, right? I obviously had an ethno-linguistic connection to the Ukrainian collective identity, but nonetheless, it was important posed on me from the very, very first years of my life that I need to learn the national anthem, that my family fights for the independence of the Ukrainian state. That was regardless of where someone lived or what ethnic, religious, linguistic group they belonged to more broadly. That was fiercely present there amongst Ukrainians of various flavors and types and generations. I think when People didn't want to acknowledge that. They didn't. They decided to call Ukrainians a variety of other names, right? Suggesting that they don't have this collective identity. I also know from friends and family who grew up in the east of Ukraine, they too have similar experiences. Perhaps in Donetsk, they didn't sing the national Ukrainian anthem in the 80s on the streets. They did. They learned these things in their homes. And that was there, the dream of an independent Ukraine. And it was present among millions prior to Ukraine's independence. That's probably at the heart of then what develops over the next 30 years following independence. It's people who were fighting in their minds, in their hearts, in, on, in their family dining room situations. They were fighting for the freedom and independence of the Ukrainian state. And they continued that fight when it became one of their own existence and lives at stake, they did everything they could. This Good morning, please. Professor. I'm going to pop in here and just say, this please, please, everyone listening, retweet that top tweet, the Live Now tweet. I've already attached the link to our space here to that tweet, so you don't need to do anything else but retweet it. Please do. Professor, it is very good to have you with us. Please carry on, Robin. I just wanted to get that in there. We just yeah. restarted the space. You probably heard that, Professor. I'm calling you Professor because I want you once more to properly pronounce your name. That will help me. My name Olya Arnold. Oh, yeah. Okay. I hope I'm doing it right. Thank you. Welcome. I guess I want to follow up on that and just want to ask about the history of Ukraine. And surely that had a role in the love of Ukraine itself, the long history, but more recently, the history with Russia. I wondered if you could address it from that angle as well, just that what role did Russia play in this sort of love of Ukraine expressed with this new identity? That's a great question. I think what is really important here, yes, of course, Ukrainian history is long. That's another thing that, you know, we call them the independence generation. That's Zelensky's generation. That's my generation. Folks that are in their 40s now that were born during communism, that were about between the ages of 
more or less seven and 16 thereabouts. They have some living memory of the communist period. Nonetheless, then were one of the first generations to be socialized politically during independence. They learned Ukrainian history through different means, sometimes in schools, sometimes through family. For a long time, Ukrainian history was already active in many people's minds, although, of course, some people did not benefit from the same types of education across different parts of the country. The history of Ukraine is long, and this is where we thought was really important in our book to stress when we were doing analyses of what Zelensky said, says and how he says it, what symbols he uses, he repeatedly, whether it was in his political satire or in his political campaigns for the presidency, and even today, he repeatedly uses history, world history, but specifically Ukrainian history, as a tool to communicate about contemporary problems or contemporary issues or contemporary solutions also. Nothing does this as well as in the show Servant of the People, where there are constant Easter eggs to famous Ukrainian historical figures, from Queen Olga to Volodymyr the Great to, of course, dissidents. That's the cool thing that we noticed in a lot of his communications and a lot of his speeches, even today, his very slight and subtle introduction of major dissident texts into his speeches, sometimes citing titles of things or specifically talking about individuals such as Ivan Zuba, who was a famous Ukrainian dissident in the 60s and 70s. He was imprisoned for writing this really famous treatise. That's getting to your second part of the question. His treatise was about Russian imperialism and chauvinism. The interesting thing about Ivan Zuba and why it's so useful that Zelensky used him as a symbolic and tool in his communication is that Ivan Zuba did not speak Ukrainian until his 20s. He taught himself, in fact, in his 20s. And his family remained in part Russian-speaking Russophones for the duration of his life. Ivan Zuba is from Donetsk Oblast, right? He's an Eastern Ukrainian who grew up as a Russophone that comes to write this treaties against Russian chauvinism. This Ivan Zuba was so incredible that he truly believed that a rationed, well-argued text will convince people that he hand-delivered this text to the Communist Party headquarters. That's yet another interesting Ukrainian history that does something that most people can't imagine themselves doing. Of course, his story ended very poorly. You, this usage of historical figures and this usage of great Ukrainians from Ukraine's past to talk about the bravery and civic attachment and duty that Ukrainians have today was a long uh, drawn out theme in much of what Zelensky has to say and also what several other politicians have to say. Certainly, if you're living under a Russian imperial rule, if you are experiencing repression, if you are being told you cannot practice the religion that you would like to practice or speak the language that you speak at home, you feel this repression quite intensely. And the history of Russian imperialism and occupation of and colonialism 
of Ukraine is ongoing, right? This is a story that has sadly featured in Ukrainian history now, not for generations, but for centuries. I, many people have some kind of knowledge of a relative or an extended relative or family friend that was repressed or that was imprisoned or that felt threatened because of Russia's repression of Ukrainians over the years. And that lives on in the memory of many ordinary Ukrainians. Thank you. You touched on something that I found fascinating. It's the whole language issue. I just recently learned that Tara Shevchenko, who was re- Shevchenko, was the uh, really the, one of the most important of Ukrainian writers, that he actually wrote his personal diary in Russian, not in Ukrainian, which I found fascinating. One of the things I learned from your book was how integrated both languages are in the in the culture of Ukraine that it isn't for example you write a lot about the the division the language division between supposed language division between east and west the repeated attempts of politicians to play off Ukrainian speakers against Russophones um and um I, could you go into that a little bit how is how much of a divide is that really and how much effect is that having on the future of Ukraine at this point I think the language context in Ukraine is so complex that it's always so hard to explain to outsiders. Of course, this group of listeners is well-versed in the complexities of Ukrainian language practices. The funny thing about many Ukrainians is that they will declare Ukrainian as their native language. And we're talking about 70-something percent, if not higher, will say that Ukrainian is their native language probably up to 85, 88 at, these, in, at this point in time. Now, oftentimes the people that declare Ukrainian to be their mother tongue or native language do not speak regularly in Ukrainian. In fact, some of them might not speak Ukrainian very well. That's been something that the work of Volodymyr Kulit, um, a great social scientist from Ukraine, has been, he's been studying this language practice and language identification for many years. Whilst many of us who, I grew up in part in Kiev, but having friends from my teenage years and childhood who speak in Russian and I speak in Ukrainian and will carry on in an entire conversation in both languages because it is understood that I will understand them obviously in Russian and they understand me in Ukrainian. We have this easygoing approach to our exchange. Not everyone has the same views on language. Some people do view that people should speak Ukrainian as part of their civic duty, in fact. For the broad majority of Ukrainians, they can interchange between the languages or they can have a bilingual conversation. That, I think, makes for Ukrainians, it's a very, it's, a, it's an incredibly rich experience when you are thinking and interacting in two languages simultaneously. Maybe that means that Ukrainians can do a lot of other things very well because of this, but it, that is an interesting phenomenon. Of course, as we write in the book, and this is something that we thought was so important to stress, that many politicians, when they started to feel politically threatened that they're going to lose an election, like others, they would double down on ethno-national, ethno-linguistic divides and identities, right? It's this divide and rule tactic to try to reclaim some of your constituency that's leaving you. 
This happened repeatedly. In fact, this was also suggested by uh, campaign managers or folks that were doing PR for in the later years for these politicians, that the language issue is something people care about, right? People don't want to be forced to speak a language or people really truly believe that the Ukrainian language should be primal above everything in society, right? Whilst some people did actually hold these positions and they were of great import to some citizens, they were not tactics that the broad majority of Ukrainians were receptive to, certainly not an election cycle. They did not like being divided along language lines for the broad majority. The first time this happens, it's actually Kavchuk who criticized Kutma for not being a proper Ukrainian and not speaking Ukrainian. Of course, what does Kutma do? Kutma responds in perfect Ukrainian, and he goes on to win the elections in actually a landslide, right? This is this thing that whilst there were divisions and whilst people do use different languages across Ukraine, and their attitudes towards language can be different along policy lines, they, Ukrainians did not like it when tra- somebody tried to divide them along those lines. They did not respond to it. If you weren't paying attention to that throughout all the different political campaigns, then you might have missed it because you would travel to Donetsk and you would notice, oh my gosh, everyone seems to be speaking Russian. You would travel to Lviv and you would notice everyone speaking Ukrainian. Oh gosh, these are such different Ukraines. In part, yes, there's some difference to how these people were socialized. Of course, language influences so many aspects of your life, but they all saw themselves as Ukrainian and chances are both, whether they were in Donetsk or in Lviv, would report to us in surveys, focus groups, and interviews that their native language is Ukrainian. They did have this collective identification towards language, even in these instances. Going forward, I see Ukraine as a liberal democracy. I see that the broad majority of its citizens that have liberal democratic values in that instance, there is an understanding that there might be linguistic minority groups in the country that should feel free to speak the language that they would like to speak. At the same time, there is one state, an official language, and that is not a complex balancing act in a liberal democracy. In fact, there are many such democracies around the world where you can have simultaneously protections about minority rights as maintaining one state language. I don't see this having to be an issue in the future for Ukraine. Thank you. I think Ukraine, Ukrainians have made that point pretty solidly. It seems as though more and more when politicians try to divide Ukrainians by language, it falls flat. I was very heartened to see the reaction to, I think her name is Irina Ferian, the professor in, in Lviv at the Polytechnic University, who, who went after Russian-speaking soldiers, including the Azov Battalion that they weren't true Ukrainians because they didn't speak Ukrainian. And her Western Ukrainian students rose up and demonstrated against that. And it really was very heartening to see that people are just not buying the linguistic divisions that have been tried to be foisted on Ukrainians from the outside. With that, I want to go over, we have a couple of hands. I'd like to go first to uh, Furious Lexicon, who's a, a member of our book club, who's, who is also a member of, our, of the Canadian diaspora. She may have uh, some particular questions related to that, and she's always good to speak to. Over to you, Lexicon. 
Hello, it's so great to meet you. And I know we only have an hour. I I don't know if it's okay to get into some of the blow by blow. I want to tell listeners the book is really a page turner in part because you do give us, Olga and Henry, some of the blow by blow of what went on in especially the recent years. But watching Servant of the People, which the book really encourages people to do, and I have rewatched it. I just can hardly live without it. It's a real specific question I want to ask, which is that when you watch series three, it's pretty incredible. We know it was held back and then was released during the election campaign in which campaigned without having to campaign in some ways and won this amazing landslide and uh, it's although he decided to run or i mean he made his announcement only on december 31st 2018 you have to believe it took a while to produce this show and there had to be a conscious decision within the troop as well as Zelensky. I wondered if you could tell us something more about that time frame and that whole phenomenon, because this is a world special. Thank you. Great question, Furious Lexicon. I think that, so actually, before I get into the campaign and the show, I do want to say that New Year's Eve announcement of declaring his candidacy was a perfect example of this linguistic element in Ukraine. We actually, in that announcement, we saw the beginning of what one might call the Ukrainianization, linguistically speaking, of Zelensky. Because when he comes out in the middle of the show from behind a curtain, I believe, and he says, I'm Vladimir Zelensky, he says it in, he says his name in Russian. And then he continues to speak in Ukrainian. And that's one of the last times he publicly uses Vladimir instead of Volodymyr. That's a really interesting moment. And I think a very useful tactic in getting people's attention in that moment. To the show and the campaign, we spoke with people that are in, let's just say, broadly speaking, under Chatham House rules, it was in the entertainment industry that would be connected to some of the individuals that were making some of these decisions, folks in that were previously in the administration or connected to the administration, as best as I can describe them, that very clearly suggest that the third season was entirely written as part of a plan to run a political campaign. There's slightly different takes on this, but even from our own analysis and understanding, this is clear to us. It is campaign material. I think not uncontroversial campaign material, right? It is, it's, I think it's very controversial that a political campaign was sold as a piece of entertainment. I think that the fact that it continued to run, even when the official campaign was supposed to be finished, because it wasn't formally official campaign material, so it didn't break any rules. I think in the future, Ukraine will have to have laws that deal with this exactly because it was one of those things where people didn't think Zelensky was actively campaigning where the campaign was very clear and the messaging was very clear. What was said in season three was repeated in a variety of ways in his social media platforms, in his campaign materials, in his speeches, and in obviously that infamous debate between him and Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine. Uh, The only way to look at that season three is that it is part of the political campaign. There we see some very clear messages about 
that which divides Ukraine is nowhere near as strong as that which unites Ukrainians and a variety of these other tropes. You don't need to be divided by ethno-nationalist tensions. The people from Lviv can be helped by the people from Donetsk, that famous scene where the miners come from Donetsk, come to save the miners from Lviv, even when the politicians can't get along, that we're all Ukrainians together. All those key messages are definitely in there. What is absent is Russia. Russia is not named. Russia is not talked about. Russia as a threat is not talked about. In part, that might be, we have claimed to this in the book, as one of the criticisms we wage against the early part of Zelensky's political career, there is some naivete there in 2019 about how he's just going to negotiate with Putin, just talk things out. Of course, anyone watching that from outside was really worried about that. Perhaps that element of naivete is also there in the third season, and certainly in the way Zelensky talked about throughout his campaign, about the Russian threat, about Russian aggression, about the war. I think it should have been clear at that point in time, Putin is not someone you can just have a conversation with and negotiate with. This is an existential aggressor for, as well to Ukraine. If you do not believe Ukraine exists fundamentally, you will continue to try to occupy it or repress it or repress its people until you get full control of it. That, that should have been already clear, I think. We do criticize Zelensky for that, including talking about the third season of its absence. Lexicon for that that's really important. And I hope we go back to that in a minute. Just before, I wanted to raise some other thing that, that they use in that third series, which is the way that Western countries, and particularly, let's say, the G7 kind of countries, insist that Ukraine must be, must hold its own role, stick to its own role as an agricultural country, as a weaker country. Also, the way some of the characters in talking about how to deal with the IMF, we're a poor country, we must be polite. Those things now, we're, one of the reasons some of us are furious is we're going to be furious until this serious aid comes from the West. The Ukraine can do long-range fires and drop the effing bridge. I just wondered if you'd talk about that, this the role of Western countries thinking they know better how to solve these problems and even the war, slow-dripping aid to the war. I don't know if you guys want to talk about that too. Absolutely. Everything you said, I agree with. We didn't really, this book is really supposed to be about contemporary Ukrainian politics that are endogenous to the country. We really didn't talk about IR and foreign relations, and we really wanted to place the focus throughout on ordinary Ukrainian citizens and their experiences. And Zelensky is one, one of the Ukrainian citizens in our story. In I fully, we, we talk, I think we do mention it in the chapter when we talk about what we call, and essentially he was a, he was a virtual incumbent, right? He was benefiting from a lot of the things that Zelensky was a virtual incumbent in 2019. He was benefiting from a lot of the things we think political incumbents benefit from in political science. Biden can now in his campaign just do the regular activities of a president and look presidential in order to convince people that he should continue to be president. 
Whereas somebody that was not a president at the same time or is for the first time trying to run for the presidency, they will have to prove that they can look and be an act presidential. Of course, Petro Poroshenko in 2019 was just being presidential, whereas Zelensky was also being presidential on television. In that show, he talks about his economic development policy, what you just mentioned about Ukraine, be a, certain countries globally wanting to pigeonhole Ukrainian economic development into this is a, an agricultural, the agricultural industry is particularly important in Ukraine. And that is what should be nurtured and not maybe new technologies or new services, specifically IT technologies, which we know Ukraine excels in. That was his economic development policy. That was there. For those folks who I think very wrongly criticized Zelensky's campaign for a lack of substance, they just weren't looking in the right places. It was in the show. It was also, though, in his campaign material. It was repeated in his appearances. It was repeated in some of the statements he made on his social media platforms. He talks about exactly these topics, like his economic development policies in the debate and other public venues. When it comes to global politics, certainly Ukraine was managed by its allies and partners for many years. And I think when historians decades from now do a proper analysis of what brought us to this point, this horribly tragic point for so many millions of ordinary citizens, they will look back to what happened in 2014. They will probably look back what happened in the early 1990s and 2000s when Ukraine was making and its leaders like Kutma were making statements that Ukraine is EU bound, but the doors were not being opened for Ukraine and a variety of different excuses were offered. We know that the geopolitics of Russia's wanting to keep its grip and hold over Ukraine was at the center of it all whether it came to EU accession or NATO accession or other things. I think there will be historians that will look specifically at what EU allies and North American allies did not do in 2014 to stop Russia in its tracks and support Ukraine more. Unfortunately, some folks may have not learned their lesson and still do not see the import of supporting Ukraine militarily in politics, whether it be in North America or across Western Europe, luckily they are in the minority. Ukraine continues to receive support, although at a slow drip drip pace, perhaps. This is incredibly important. Mistakes that were made in 2014, specifically in how Ukraine was viewed and how Ukraine's military, it was suggested that Ukraine should not fight back against the little green men initially. All, a variety of these elements that people that work in security and defense know all too well the story of. This will be the story of the biggest mistakes made of this century. I'm confident in that. And perhaps too many Ukrainian politicians were also not brave enough to push forward for the things that they wanted their country to achieve. I think, though, I specifically want to shout out the work of Viktor Yushchenko, I think Viktor Yushchenko fought very hard to bring Ukraine closer to the EU. I don't think at the time EU partners and allies were as supportive of Ukraine as they could have been. That unfortunately had truly tragic consequences 
for ordinary, ordinary people living in Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, um, Ukraine, elsewhere. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful answer. Why don't we go to the hands here? Uh, Russ Ocean, I'm pronouncing it. Russ, I, I, correct me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Is, is my name, my real name is Raouf, uh, is a pronunciation. Uh, I have a, uh, first of all, I have a welcome to Olga and I very appreciated for listening. I know that you are author of book about Zelensky effect. I remember that 2019, uh, he's a Zelensky presidential campaign. He's a very brave presidential campaign for me because I remember that what he saw coming, how he's a successful from entertainment uh, sphere. Uh, he's a leader, almost Ukraine entertainment culture, Zelensky. And uh, for example, he is a TV series serving of the nation. Actually, he's a every concert performances in the, and especially of service for nation, he's almost critics and satir, successful satire again for Ukraine political establishment. I remember that presidential campaign between Zelensky and Poroshenko. Uh, I, I know very well because uh, time I support Zelensky time of social media. Uh, Poroshenko, for example, yes, uh, Poroshenko also doing very great, uh, some issues for Ukraine. Unfortunately, Mr. Poroshenko is a part of the old Ukraine political establishment. And times of the presidential campaign, Poroshenko, so Mr. Poroshenko, so much polarized country of language issue, some ethnic issue is a main issue. But Zelensky presidential campaign may be naive, but despite the naive, naive, very unique, united for country. And Zelensky winning in the election, 73%. I remember that is a beautiful, great debate between Poroshenko and Zelensky in football stad stadium. It's an extraordinary political debate for me. I have a two questions for Olga. First, about language issue. For me, the language issue is a doesn't matter. I know that a lot of Russian speakers, Ukrainians, uh, very well patriotic because Russian argument is that it's trying to polarize countries from language issue. And Russian propaganda using the, for example, Vladimir Posner, Kremlin propagands always talking about this issue. We know that Kharkiv, Mariupol, Odessa, he's a Russian speaking place, so much suffering by Russian occupation and good resists of Ra Russian. For example, Timothy Snyder talking about that his Yale course in Ukraine history, he said that Ukraine multilingual, multilingual country actually. First about language issue, also second about effect of Zelensky. He's a TV series of service of the nation. Also his YouTube channel is the presence talking about Ukrainian problem. And what do you think about that? Thank you. Glory to Ukraine and glory, hello from Azerbaijan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello to Azerbaijan as well. Uh, you mentioned a lot of things and I think there's a few things that I'd like to pick up on. Yes, Poroshenko is definitely, first of all, he is an oligarch, he is a billionaire, and he is part of a very particular group of Ukrainian oligarchs. We need to be extremely critical of how these individuals accumulated not only wealth, but also power. There are some great studies, including by Sylvia Nitsova, that are coming up all about how this oligarchic project developed in Ukraine over time. Poroshenko is 
in that way, not only is he part of a different generation, but he's also very difficult to say, but he is also part of the problem, right? Oligarchization of Ukraine was a problem in many ways for Ukraine's democratic development. Some might argue at the same time that it prevented from the prevented the centralization of power because there were competing oligarchic groups, and that actually made it very difficult for any one individual to accumulate centralized power. It's this blessing and a curse in Ukrainian democratic development. Second, though Poroshenko, we have to absolutely admit that Poroshenko's time as president, he also achieved a lot of important reforms by allowing people from civil society, people from other parties, young generation folks to come in. This is the beginnings of military reform that become integral to what happens thereafter. Decentralization that fundamentally changed how ordinary Ukrainians experience their local politics and economy and a variety of other very important key reforms. In fact, in some ways, we can look at that five-year period as a reformer president and a very substantial reformer president. That shouldn't We shouldn't play that down because that is very important. We do our best in the very limited amount of space we have in the book to outline some of the key reforms that we thought took place under Poroshenko that we believe were really important. We can't outline all of them, of course, not enough pages, but we thought it was important. That being said, Poroshenko's presidential campaign, as you noted, was a disaster. It was strangely so disastrous. Anyone who's a social scientist who has been, if you are working on political campaigns, if you're a social scientist, if you're a pollster, if you work in political PR tactics, this was just not, it wasn't focused on the empirical realities of what his constituencies wanted, of what his voters wanted. He was speaking to a very small constituency in Ukraine and nowhere you have to speak to the center in Ukraine. That was a crash and burn campaign. To this day, I can't really understand how there was no change in tactic over the course of the campaign. I do hope that in the future, other political opposition candidates currently in opposition or other political candidates for the presidency in the future will not make the same mistakes and will really focus on what the, the empirical realities of what constituents want. That I th thought was just really important to to mention because we talked about Poroshenko there for a second. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Everything you said, I don't disagree with. For a lot of people, the language issue is not an issue. But increasingly, there is some evidence that people are switching, even Russophones, are switching to Ukrainian or at least declaring that they are because they want to signal their attachment again to the Ukrainian state. As long as this is not happening out of fear or threat, I think it's an interesting development amongst ordinary citizens. Even when they're being interviewed on, you, you might see this on television or with, by journalists, they will try to speak in Ukrainian even clearly when they are not Ukrainian speakers. They will slip back into Surzik or Russian. The, the, they do want to signal this attachment to the state by trying at least initially to speak a little bit in Ukrainian. This doesn't mean that. There will always be Russophone Ukrainians. In fact, it would be brilliant if somebody would write a book of 
Ukrainian Surzik and Ukrainian Russian. This is an actual element that makes Ukrainian political and civic culture that much richer, right? It's a different kind of Russian to the Russian spoken in Moscow or St. Petersburg. Surzik, of course, is something entirely different. And it, somebody could make a bigger research project or book. It would be probably fascinating to read. There is something very specifically Ukrainian about Surzik, and that I think many people take great pride in that as well. Not all folks agree with this, right? There is about 20% of the Ukrainian population that does not like the fact that people speak in Russian regularly, right? That is their right to hold this view and opinion as long as they are not imposing or threatening other citizens. I believe that they are not for the most part. When it comes to the political satire, ex exactly, this is something that Although a lot of the comedy, at least in my family, I come from the 25 percenters, those folks who did vote for Poroshenko in 2019 from Western Ukraine. My family was not a fan of Zelensky. Certainly, we did not watch a lot of the political satire shows and television shows. It, it, me growing up, personally, it was something that, I mean, I even to this day find a lot of the humor in that, specifically in the theatrical performances, distasteful. Aside from some of the bad jokes, aside from, I think, some humor that is not only distasteful, but is can be offensive, throughout this career, you have this incredible public display of political satire and political critique that really resonated with ordinary citizens. And Henry and I, we compare Zelensky's earlier political satire to like Jon Stewart, someone that was loved across partisan lines in, in, in the U.S., even watched by many Canadians, because he just simply understood something fundamental that citizens had a grievance with. And he was able to communicate it and talk about it in a way that was accessible. I think that's exactly what Zelensky was doing for many years. That's exactly what people weren't paying attention to Zelensky doing for many years. That's something that's fascinating. Raru, okay. we're going to come back to you, but uh, go, ahead, go ahead, Robin, and then we'll go to Kylia and then come back to you. Time is flying so fast. Yeah. That's why I, I would like to come back to you last because you've had a good long question and a good long response. Raru, thank you. Okay, James, it's a good point. Let's go to Kylie. Well, I was going to about to ask a question in the U.S. and the back channels, but you came up, so that's even better. Go on. Hi, good morning. I wanted to ask a question about voting because I think that in the U.S., um, a lot of people think of not voting as a protest vote. I disagree with this, but I was wondering if you could maybe speak about how Ukrainians think about voting and the kind of culture around voting in Ukraine, because I really know nothing about it. And I think it would be helpful for Americans who are going to use their non-vote as a protest vote to maybe think again about not voting. That's my question. Thanks. Kai, that's an excellent question, and I might veer into my own normative stance here on this. But Ukrainians up and down in terms of Ukrainian participation and turnout over 30 years. The question is what drove turnout in Ukraine? That's a question that's still relatively unanswered in a lot of the analyses. We know that some elections were understood to be more important for the future of Ukraine. This is the earlier elections. This is certainly in 2004. These are the elections, obviously, of 2019, where we saw turnout 
get quite high. There were periods of very little turnout as well in, in the intermittent parliamentary and presidential elections. One of the things we tried to do, we, Gwendolyn Sasse, David Doyle, Serena Toma, and others and I run a, pro, a project called Mobilize. We collected a lot of data, obviously, on Ukrainians over that period of time, but also on Poles, Moroccans, and Argentines and Belarusians. One of the things we were interested in exactly is when do people exit from the political space and when do people not use their vote? We have some data on people saying that they either spoiled their ballot or that they abstained from voting and why. The folks who spoiled their ballot, they do see it as a political act of engagement, that they do not support any of the candidates as legitimate candidates for the presidency. Kai, you and I might have different normative views about that. We may or may not personally agree with that. But as a political scientist, I have to acknowledge that is how those people view that action. They see it as a protest against the options available to them. Then if you look at those who abstained from voting, there's quite a lot of different things that drive that. I think in Ukrainian, in the Ukrainian data, a very small portion of those who abstain, abstain simply because they're not interested, right? There's a slightly larger proportion of people that abstained from voting or abstained in the past from voting because they didn't think that their vote mattered. Now, that's something we can do something about, right? As, as politicians, as campaigners, as professors, we can do something about making sure to communicate to citizens that their vo vote does make a difference, right? It doesn't take, there's elections around the world that are incredibly close that we can use as examples where individual votes made a difference. Then when you look more deeply at abstainers, it's some of the other things, socioeconomic experiences. When people just have, they're trying to survive economically, they are barely making ends meet, to have to absorb a political campaign and then vote is actually very difficult. That is an obstacle to their engagement. Those of us who are, said, teachers, but maybe activists, politicians, friends, we have to find a way to make sure that obstacle is taken out. Of course, in Ukraine, and I think this point is something to tell your friends who are not going to vote or family or whoever, <laughs> the person at the bus stop, a very large portion of those who abstained from voting following 2014 were people who said it was too dangerous or impossible for them to vote because A, they live in territory that is occupied or close to the war zone or their family lives in occupied territories or they worry for their safety because of an aggressor's war. Now that is something we can understand. That there are people today, if there was an election in Ukraine today, there would be people that would be living in occupied territories or whose family might be threatened should they engage in elections, right, that would have this to consider. Now, when you are living in a country that is safe from war, that your family is safe from threat of violence and repression, you're almost like rubbing it in those people's faces. They would love the chance to vote in their elections, but it's just far too dangerous for them to do so. And individual votes matter. Individual votes matter, especially in a system like 
the electoral college you have in the U.S. That's something that political scientists are in awe of, especially those of us from abroad. Votes matter. Individual votes matter. I think it's an incredibly frustrating thing when people who have the freedom, have the safety, have the ability to engage in their politics and don't. If they care at all about the humanity out there who can't do these things, they don't have these basic rights, that they would do anything to be able to do this, to, to cast their vote. Maybe reminding them of that is helpful, that it's a real privilege to be able to vote. And it's a right and it's a privilege in this world. Thank you. I wish more people got that message. I think it's also really a responsibility. That's one of the things about civic the civic society that you talk about in Ukraine is people understand their responsibilities as citizens, not just their rights. Okay, we have a few minutes. Um, Olha, you, you let me know when you really need to go because I don't want to hold you over too long. I think we've got a, probably another 10 minutes or so. Would that work for you? That would work. Beautiful. Okay, let's go to Ralph and then Lexicon and I have a our concluding question. Go ahead, Ralph. Uh, I have a point that I have a trying to doing one to two minutes, say all things. First, you, I love that Ukrainian language and Ukraine language for me is a mother of all Slavic languages. I think that important promote Ukraine languages. And I listen that Ukraine languages in music, listen to Ukraine music. I very relaxed so much. Second point is that also important that preserve and protect Crimean Tatar language and culture. Crimean Tatar language culture is a part of not only Turkic culture, also part of Ukrainian culture too. Because almost 10 years also before, Crimean Tatar so much suffering that Russian occupation and repression by Russia. Also, third point is that it's very important. Ukraine need very well as a good communication policy. Of course, the physical life too, but especially in the social media. In every, because every social media have a very different content and very different topics. For example, in the U Russia, very well using of propaganda machine of global salt. For example, I saw that global salt media like Al Jazeera, your Indian media, some Africa media, using of conspiracy theory against Ukraine. It's very important. Also in US, for example, first our article of the free speech and also Russia working with some of people of Tucker Carlson, etc., etc. He's a create some conspiracy theory against Ukraine. Ukraine very well need of communication policy. That's my point. Glory to Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you. Please go ahead, Various Lexicon. Okay, thank you. How many questions I want to ask? I hope we can get you back. I'm Diaspora from uh, Halitina. Um, and I just will go back then with um, Rauf uh, to a historical point. This Ukraine, which has been ruled for decades under the Soviet Union, was administered as a unit. I don't know what the autonomous or whatever you would call it. In 1991, when the chance comes, over 80% of the electorate goes out and votes 90, over 90%. Crimea also votes for an independent Ukraine. How did, despite Soviet rule and the various and repeated Russification campaigns, 
that one of two things my mom always talked to me about was she'd just say, oh, Russification and shake her head. People here, many thought it was hopeless. Anyway, that Ukraine had that nation sense of nationhood by this point when the chance came to vote. Can you talk about that? I think it's, it's something that is very difficult for us to know for certain and study. But we know that there were people keeping the Ukrainian nationhood idea alive, right? We have various social movement organizations over time and space. We have various dissident movements, activist movements. We have in the preceding the 20th century, we have um, uh, Prosvita uh, as an organization that was really important. And that had active branches across all of the Ukrainian territory. This is something that is kept alive by many active and duty-bound citizens, but also ordinary citizens in their daily experiences. A lot of individual choices, such as Ivan Duba's to start learning Ukrainian at some point. It just shows that the long history that existed that was kept alive by people within Ukraine, across Ukraine, and also outside of it. It's, you can't, once it's there, you can't destroy it, or it's very difficult to destroy it. The more you try to destroy it in people, the more people have a resolve to keep it alive. That's, I don't like to talk about my personal experiences and family experiences too much publicly, but certainly that's how it was in my family growing up whether that was my family that was living in Ukraine or outside of it. This element that we are who we are all in it together and we're all trying to ensure that Ukraine is an independent state. And for the broad majority of us, we are not only interested in its independence, but the fact that it's a liberal democracy that takes care of its citizens. I just wanted to touch on the fact, absolutely, music is an excellent way to actually learn some Ukrainian. This is why Henry and I decided to do something really unorthodox for political science nerds, include some Spotify song suggestions at the end of each chapter, because I, my, my family is from the arts and culture field in Ukraine. I think cultural diplomacy is one of, it's an excellent tool to engage with the outside world, but also I think Ukraine has so much culturally to offer and contemporary Ukrainian music is really great. This is one of yet another irony of Russia trying to repress Ukraine, its culture, its language, its existence. And then you have the arts and culture thriving in Ukraine, whether it is literature, poetry, or songs. That obviously brings me to uh, Jamala had another song competing for the Eurovision. She was previously Ukraine's representation for Eurovision and winning it. A moment I was in Manchester when she won, and I have to say I've never jumped or screamed as loud or as high as I did that when she won that the Eurovision then. Eurovision is a big deal in Manchester, United Kingdom, if anyone doesn't know. Yes, that her song that won the Eurovision was obviously about Crimean forced deportation, Crimean Tatar, sorry, forced deportation and the experiences of her family and the experiences actually of many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands over the years of Crimean Tatars that were forcibly displaced, that were repressed, whose families were divided and who were killed. This is not the story of Jamala, uh, but of many 
and of course of the Minister of Defense of Ukraine. This is something that he's been actually very prominently talking about in his time prior to becoming Minister of Defense because Crimean Tatars are Crimean Tatars. They have their own language, culture, and history, but they are part of the Ukrainian civic nation. It's been really interesting to watch how folks who maybe until 2013, 2014 saw a very exclusive idea of what it means to be Ukrainian, that we're from Lviv, from Halichina, where you're from, various lexicon, or your family hails from. Those folks who thought that there was only one way to be Ukrainian, right? That you had to speak Ukrainian, that you had to have certain ethnic roots, perhaps, or cultural practices. How quickly they shifted those views and fully embraced this, the Crimean Tatar experience. Perhaps up until 2013, 14, they did not, right? Perhaps they were not as educated about the plight of Crimean Tatars up until that point. Again, tragically, it's a sad fact of history that many Ukrainians probably until that period didn't understand exactly how much Crimean Tatars were repressed over time. Very quickly, people realized that they failed to know this history. They taught themselves. That, I think, is a really interesting experience. When people who have inward, exclusive, nationalist-focused ideals of what it means to be a good Ukrainian, a good Pole, a good French person, can realize that they were wrong and very quickly come to educate themselves about the plight of what is an incredibly important group of citizens that belong to the Ukrainian civic nation. Thank you. Talking about the Tatars, I noticed that I don't remember the specifics, I'm afraid, but yeah. that in in Ukraine in the last year or so, Institute was founded that for the promotion of the Tatar language, which I thought was really wonderful. I just, I see where we've gotten past the hour. I want to just say, ask one last question and then I'm, we're going to let you go. We don't want your students to have to wait for you. <laughs> what I, What's next for you? We're going to be following your career closely. What should we be looking for? We're busy. <laughs> Me and my colleagues are busy. I'm busy. We have other projects in the mix. It's, we do a lot of political advisory work and, and consultancy work as well. I always work as part of a team, although I don't always publish as part of a team, but I do tend to work as part of a team. Of course, a lot of work with Henry that we have ongoing, a lot of work with Gwendolyn Sasa that we have ongoing and Voldemir Kulik, specifically on Ukrainian identity, ethno-linguistic identity, civic identity, and attachments to the state. We continue to study that in probably more nerdy and social scientific ways than maybe everyone likes to read about. There are some more accessible and more public-facing book projects that are in the mix, but I'm not at liberty to, to disclose them quite yet. The two things that I'm really interested in personally right now, one is civilian engagement in the war effort. I titled one of my courses here at the University of Manchester, Ukraine Rises. The course is actually about contemporary Ukrainian politics, but I think that is one way to describe the last 30 years of Ukrainian politics, Ukrainians rising time and time again. That is something that I'm deeply interested in. What drives ordinary people to engage and specifically in a wartime context, specifically when they are threatened, 
specifically when it's extremely dangerous to do? How do they find the means, the capacity to engage and to continue to engage? Maybe I'll leave you with one little new fact. Not only is 80%, 80% of the Ukrainian civilian population engaged in the war effort in some shape or form by donating, by volunteering, donating money, in-kind materials, by, and this goes everything from, when people say donating, they, we write this about this in the book, and we've been collecting data continuously on this. They don't just mean financially donating, but also whatever they have in their home to support the war effort, digging up potatoes, cooking a hearty soup for the boys and girls at the front as they report to us, right? They are actively engaged through these different ways. Of course, the civilian resistance beyond the occupation lines, right? The yellow ribbon movement, which is just one example of the many different things that are happening under occupation. I don't know. I I get really emotional, but I cannot imagine living under occupation, fearing for your life and the life of your family, and finding a way to do small acts of resistance on a regular basis. One example was in a locality, somebody overnight painted the Ukrainian flag along the entire patrol route of the Russian occupying army. When they woke up and they did their patrol, they saw the Ukrainian flag on a pole. They saw the Ukrainian flag on a tree. They saw the Ukrainian flag on a building. And then they knew they are supposed to be watching those that they are occupying, but they are being watched. And that civilian resistance under occupation is ongoing. If you are that Russian army officer, you must get a chill through your spine when you see that. That's what fascinates me. Not only 80% are actively engaged, the newest data we have Of those who are actively engaged, that 80%, 80 80-something percent of them are continuously doing this actively throughout the last nearly, gosh, now two years of all-out war. They are not only actively continuously doing this engagement, but they are willing to continue it as long as it takes. And there's other forms of data that support this. For instance, Monobank. Um, has some data about the continued donations financially. We have other data from scraping social media, Telegram, and other means. Even when traumatized, tired, two years into this all-out war, constant air raids, Ukrainians are continuing to engage. That is a story that I hope to be able to tell you all, maybe in the form of a book coming soon. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's not nearly long enough. We must insist you come back if you would, maybe closer to when we're finishing the book. It's been a delight. I know we've got all many questions, but I just please, audience, please give a hand. As we do, we use our little emoticons here to say thank you to you. And you are an inspiration for us. The book has been inspiring and the 
people of Ukraine are inspiring to us. You're talking also to another group of people who are very engaged in this. We're all about Ukraine or Ukraine. Thank you again. And we look forward to another conversation if we're lucky enough to have one. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Slava Ukraini. Okay. People. We were very happy to have had this chance. I know everybody had questions and more people wanted to ask questions. There, there's still time to talk about this topic at a later time. I know that we've got someone coming up here oh. and that is where I may be jumping out. I'm not quite yeah. sure yet, Robin. Yeah, actually that's... stick around for a few minutes. I think we're going to be doing the Middle East update, but I think I'm going to wait for, I don't think Emma's quite here yet. So I think he'll let us know when he's ready to come up. I had originally told him uh, we'd be going a little longer. So we have a few minutes to do a debrief. Boy, this was amazing, wasn't it? I'm just so, I, this, what an incredible person. What a wonderful, what a wonderful discussion. Thank you everyone for participating. Over to you, Jen. It was delightful. I had my questions and comments that, that I reserved for another time. I, and I'm sure, and I know you did as well. Just never enough time. And what it, and people, if you have not picked a book to read, I'm going to suggest this one is a great way to get into the head of, of Ukrainians, I would say, in general, to understand how they're thinking, what they're feeling, and what Zelensky is thinking and feeling. I just admire him so much because he does such a good job at being the leader that Ukraine needs now. It's been a delightful read. Listen, I've listened and read it now. I strongly encourage everyone to pick up this one and listen or read it. It's wonderful. One of, one of the things that I love the most about this book is it continually humanizes the situation. They write about individual Ukrainians. It's so easy to get involved in, in talking about the, the war in Ukraine as a mass thing, about Russian troop movements and all that kind of stuff. And it's really hard to keep, remember to focus all the time. We're talking about the father who goes to work and the mother and the child and the grandparents who just want to have peace and have their kids over to their grandchildren over for dinner on a Sunday or whatever. This book really strikes a wonderful balance between the uh, the social science aspect, the statistics and everything at the same time with the human element that we never forget we're talking about individuals, about human beings. With that, James, it looks as though uh, Emma's here. So I'm going to give you a closing comment, and then we can switch over and start with the Middle East update. Thanks, Robin. No, I really don't have any more comment on that except wonderful. Can't wait till we do this again with her. Yes, please do read it. Anyways, I'm going to duck out now and have a good session. I'll be listening. Hey, thanks so much, James. And Lexica, thank you also for being here. You've really added a lot to the conversation. Thank you, well, everyone. It's just fabulous. Thank you guys for arranging that. We need to have her back. You understand her passion. And I, to me, there's a whole new dimension added to the book now from some of the insights she gave us and the approach that she has who she is. Anyway, just the this one thing I'll say that resounds is when people talk, I just saw some bloody Owen Matthews, cor Russia correspondent of the bloody Spectators and Newsweek with all his crap about how there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement and they'll just be a split country. And she leaves you in no doubt that Ukrainians will fight to the complete liberation. You've got some of the substance there. 
to help you understand why. Thanks so much for your work on this. Yes, let's get her and uh, let's get lots of days ahead of time to announce so that people, uh, more people come and meet to her. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Lexicon. I'm so grateful to her that she was willing to spend the time. She's a, a busy and prominent person, but it was a, she made a special a special point to come and speak with us, which I really appreciate. Okay. Well, Em, I'm going to say welcome, even though you're not in the co-host seat yet. I don't see why we can't start anyway. <laughs>